welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. you guys have we had a fall this good in several years does anybody want to argue with me on that one like I love the fact that we're in November and we still have some warm days we're getting some of that cool fall weather it's been a great time to be outside isn't it like just to, to walk outside and just enjoy the world the way that it has been and the reason I've been thinking about this is because like some of you I'm a big deer hunter and it's been deer season I walk outside and I just think oh this is perfect weather to sit on a deer stand but I have a job, so I don't get to do that very much. But it has been awesome. And I was thinking this week about people being outdoors, about being able to hunt. Um, I know we've got a lot of gardeners in the church and, and all the things that we have that we do to go outside. And I got to wondering something. How much money and time do we spend trying to figure out how to get back outside? Because like as people, we kind of exist in buildings, like we have church in buildings, we live in buildings, but there's something about us that draws us back outside again and again, where we try to find a way to go outside and enjoy the leaves or enjoy the weather. And so I started doing some research and I want you to listen to this. Every year, Americans spend 646 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars on outdoor recreation. That's 2% of all the money spent in America goes strictly to us finding a way to be outside. Uh, you want to compare that to utilities, you know, the things that keep the electricity on and the water, we only spend $556 billion on the things that make our houses comfortable for us. Again, we spend $410 billion, that's $200 billion less than on outdoor recreation. We spend that on our vehicles and repair. And what that tells me about us as Americans and as people is that we are willing to spend money for outdoor experiences. And I've been thinking about this this week, and I think I know why. I think an outdoor experience is a spiritual experience. Like, I don't know that you can be closer to God based on where you are, but I feel like if we spend time outside with no distractions, we reconnect to, to God in a way that we don't when we have the distractions of the cell phones or the TVs or something like that. And I think the reason that people enjoy it so much and are drawn to it is when God created us. If you go back to Genesis, when God created us, he did not create us and put us in a building. God created us and he put us in a garden and he said, go cultivate, go see the animals intertwine with nature. And I think there's something about us, even in our fallen state, where we still want to reconnect with the world God made. And, and if you think about that, I, I'm a big outdoorsman, so maybe I have more stories than this, but I think everybody has those stories of a time they remember where they reconnected with the world God made the way it was supposed to be before our sin. Like, like I said earlier, I'm a huge deer hunter, and any deer hunter will tell you that the funnest part of, of deer hunting is not actually killing a deer. It's getting to watch the animals and be a part of wildlife. I've had some awesome experiences on deer stands. I've watched bobcats walk by. I've seen all kinds of animals. Several years ago, my wife and I traveled out west, and we got to see like big sheep and elk and bison and it's just this moment of like awe-inspiring you just feel like oh wow this is this is what God made us for to be like this I told you all that to tell you one of my favorite stories um, I was out hunting with my dad and my two little brothers one time and we were around the campfire at night and that's maybe the best part of it is not even the hunting it's when you get to be with people you love and and um, we have this weird thing in my family my wife and I talked about this this week and she thinks it's odd but we like to call coyotes have you guys ever done that anybody in here 
Okay, well, let me tell you how it works since nobody's ever done that. If you are outside at nighttime, you can howl to the moon like a coyote, and people will think you're crazy. But somewhere across the distance, as your voice gets distorted, if a coyote can hear you, they will answer back. And what's amazing about that is once you howl and you get that first answer back, you will hear this chorus of howls all across the area. And you can spot where the coyote herd is by just by one single howl. It's one of my favorite things to do. Now, my wife told me that I was crazy for doing that, but I love it because it's this reconnection to nature and the way God made us. Now, usually when you do that, you say, oh, they're over the hill and under the holler and way over there. That's where the coyotes are. But this one time when we were all camping, my dad and myself, my, uh, my two little brothers at, at, I think it was turkey camp, actually. My dad let off a howl and we were sitting there listening and off in the distance, we heard the first howl of the coyote. Way off in the distance, it's like, oh, it worked. And then as other coyotes started to answer, they got closer and closer and closer and then suddenly they weren't all in one direction they were there and there and there and there and when I say they were close I mean like here to the gym close it was eerily close now for me I was like 16 and, and wasn't real scared I've been in the woods enough to know coyotes won't, won't bother you but my little brother who was 9 he, he disagreed with that as soon as that, those howls got close he immediately jumped out of his seat he ran around the fire and he went and plopped down in my dad's lap and grabbed his arms and just did this and I think that's interesting, the way that we respond to things that we see as, as danger or things that could be painful. It's not that the perceived danger of what was in the woods went away because he plopped down in my dad's lap. There's just something about being close to someone who cares about you that brings you comfort when you're having hard times and hard circumstances in that. And I think that is the best picture of maybe what it looks like for us to run to God. When we go to him without question and know that he cares enough for us, we don't have to ask, God, will you help me here? We can just plop down in his lap and trust him like a child running to their father. God, you will protect me. And so as we look at the howls of hardship and heartache and, and suffering in this world, our, our encouragement should always be that, that God is there as a comfort for us. When we are close with God, he will comfort us. And today I want to look at a story. We've been in a series called... Um, Shine in, the shine in the suffering, where we have been talking about what happens when we suffer in this world. And listen, I, I hate to tell you this, it is not if the howls of suffering will come after you, it is when. Because each one of us, a part of our life, will be going through hardship and going through hurt and going through pain. And I want to look at a story today that I think tells us a lot about the heart of God and reveals, uh, reveals to us and reminds us what it's like to run to God. And this story deals with the worst brokenness, and I did not plan this. This, this was just this, I did not plan this for this week. This was the plan weeks ago. And th this, this story deals with the loss of a family member. So in John chapter 11, there's a story that a lot of you are familiar with. It's, it's the story of Lazarus. In the Bible, there's this family, or in Jesus' time, there's this family that lives in Bethany. It's two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Jesus is so close to this family. He travels by and he always stops and stays with them. Martha cooks for him. Mary listens to his teaching. There's real closeness here. These aren't just believers. These are people that are close, intimate friends with Jesus when he is on this earth. And Jesus is off doing things, and Lazarus, the brother, gets sick. He gets, he gets really sick and to the point where they realize we have to do something because he is sick to a point of possibly dying. And so they send off for Jesus to send a message to him that says, Jesus, we don't know what's wrong with Lazarus, but he's sick and we need you here now because we know you are the miracle worker. You are the healer and if you are here, you can be with Lazarus and you can heal him. 
And what I find interesting about this story is when Jesus gets this, when Jesus gets this, this is his reply. This is chapter 11, verse 4. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son might be glorified thereby. Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus, and we looked at how different his heart is when dealing with hardship and when dealing with suffering. We looked at the fact that he does not ask the question that most of us ask. Most of us ask, why? Why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this hardship? Why do I have to deal with this? But that's not what Jesus asked. Jesus' immediate mindset takes him to how will God be glorified in the circumstances that I am going through? And when Jesus hears this about Lazarus, he doesn't ask, oh no, why is Lazarus sick? He's one of my close friends. He says, this is an opportunity for God to work. This is an opportunity for God to be glorified. And Jesus says this about Lazarus. He says, this is not a sickness that leads to death. Now, now some of you guys know this story, right? You know that that's weird and because Lazarus does in fact die. So why would Jesus say this, this doesn't lead to death? Why, why did Jesus say that that's not where it's going when the story obviously tells us that it was? We have to ask, was Jesus wrong? And then if we know Jesus, we immediately ask that and dismiss that. That's not in the realm of possibilities. Jesus is never wrong. But what Jesus knew is he knew the end of the story, not just the beginning. He knew that in this, Lazarus would die, Lazarus would be buried, there would be a great deal of mourning, and then he would raise Lazarus from the dead. Spoiler alert, that's how the story ends up. And he knows that, and because he knows that there will be healing, that death is not permanent for Lazarus, that it is only temporary, he knows that it doesn't matter. It's going to be just a footnote in the story of Lazarus' life. I had a, uh, a person I went to high school with, and I don't know all of the particulars about it, but she was what we call clinically dead for three minutes. Her heart quit beating, and she quit breathing. However, that wasn't permanent. Through CPR, they were able to bring her back, and, and she is living a full, successful life at this moment. She, she's here. And if you ask her, what was it like to be dead? It's just, for her, it's a footnote, because it was temporary. And that's how Jesus looks at this when he's talking about Lazarus. Yes, Lazarus will die, but it's only temporary. He's going to come back. And I want you to remember this. This is going to become very important later. Is that the view of Jesus' death, or, or Jesus' view of death was somewhat trivial. Like, yes, he's going to die, but it's, it's going to be okay. It's going to come back around. Now hang on to that for just a second because we're going to come back to that thought. It's going to be very important for the overall thought of our sermon. It takes Jesus two days before he leaves to travel to Jerusalem or to Bethany to go where Lazarus is. Two days with one of his close friends, sick and ailing, possibly on the doorstep of death, and Jesus doesn't get in any kind of hurry. And we have to ask why. Was it possible that, that Jesus was indifferent? In fact, a lot of people, when he comes there, they'll accuse him of being indifferent. It's like, oh, Jesus didn't care if he died. He said he was a great friend, but he let this horrible thing happen, and he could have been here sooner. And so some people might look at this and say, Jesus was indifferent. You might say, Jesus knew the end, so he didn't get in a hurry. I personally believe, the Bible doesn't say this, I personally believe that probably Lazarus may have already been dead before Jesus ever got the message that he was sick. But for some reason, he doesn't leave immediately. And when he decides to leave, his disciples are going to argue with him. 
And the reason they're going to argue with him is there are a lot of people in Bethany and the surrounding area that do not like Jesus. And when I say do not like Jesus, I don't mean they bullied him online because they didn't like him. I mean, they want to kill him. They, they actually tell Jesus, Jesus, you can't go back there. Last time we were there, they tried to stone you. Well, when Jesus argues with them and says, no, we're going, the disciple Thomas, the apostle Thomas says to Jesus, okay, I will go with you and I will die with you. That's how dire a circumstance it was for Jesus to return to Bethany. And then in the end of that, if you follow the Bible on through past John chapter 11, you'll see this is the first step into what eventually will be the crucifixion of Jesus. And so Jesus is going to this place at great personal risk to himself. And if there's any sense that because Jesus didn't leave immediately, that Jesus didn't care, or because Jesus knew that Lazarus would be uh, healed, that he didn't care, I want to put that to bed because at great personal cost to himself, his heart was set on being with people that he loved while they hurt. He went there knowing that it would cost his death. He went there knowing it wasn't necessary. Jesus could have healed Lazarus from anywhere. He didn't have to be there. Jesus could have brought Lazarus back from the dead from anywhere. He didn't have to be there, but Jesus wants to be where his people are. And that brings us to our first take-home truth. It's when Jesus' people are hurting, he will be there with them. It's a hard thing for us to say sometimes because when we're hurting, we often feel very alone. But the truth of it is, as a Christian, we're never anywhere where Christ is not. And when our hearts are broken, he is there with us. And, and we see this in the story as you continue on. Jesus walks up and Martha, the sister, comes out and meets him. And she walks up to him and the first thing she says is, that, Jesus, if you had been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she's crying and she falls at his feet. And later he sees the other sister, Mary, and she walks up to him and she says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother Lazarus would not have died. They both said the exact same thing to him. It's almost like they had talked about this. If Jesus would have been here. And there's two different ways to look at that, and scholars kind of disagree the way to look at it. Part, part, some scholars look at it this way. Part of it, they think, is, is these people were mad at Jesus, and it was said in an accusing way. Jesus, if you had been here, if you had got here quicker, you wouldn't be going through this. And other people say it's an expression of faith. Jesus, I know you could have stopped this if you had been here. And the truth is, the Bible doesn't say exactly why they said it, but I really think it was a mixture of both. I think that there was an expression of faith in them. Jesus, if you had been here, you could have stopped this. And I think there was also so much torment in her. They said, but you didn't get here in time. And you let this happen, and it hurts. See, when people, when people deal with things, our emotions get confused. We can both be mad and at the same time desire comfort from someone. And grief, blame, and trust can all get caught up in this emotional jumble of what we feel. And it can just come out in a burst of just angst and hurt and humans go through this grief process uh, five stages of grief where they start out with denial no they're not really gone and then they, they move to anger and then they move to bargaining and then depression and acceptance that's that's how we deal with grief when something really causes us to hurt and what i see out of mary and martha is i think that they're somewhere in between denial and anger they're upset with jesus that he wasn't there and they're denying that there was nothing that could be done to save him and so as they as they look at jesus and they half accuse him of being there too late and half lean their faith on him and look for comfort from him. This is Jesus' response in verses 33 through 35. And this is maybe some of the most comforting words in the Bible. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. 
And he said, where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. 35, Jesus wept. You see an amazing part of our God's heart in this story and what Jesus is doing. But before we look at that, I think we can also learn a lot in the Bible about what is not recorded in the Bible. Because what Jesus didn't do is he didn't rebuke them. He didn't say to Mary and Martha, oh, you have little faith. Don't you believe that I can make this work? Jesus did not try to teach them about having faith in hard times. Jesus did not snap at them angrily and say, well, why aren't you, why are you acting this way when you know I came to save the world? You don't see any of that. Instead, what the Bible says is that he groaned in his spirit. Groaned in his spirit. If you go back to the Greek verb there for groaned, what that word means is to snort like a horse. And it's an expression of anger, which is a weird thing. It's a weird thing to say. Have you guys ever been so mad that you've snorted? Some of you are laughing. You've been that mad. You've had kids or you've been married, right? Like you just, like you just, you just snort like that. It's this expression of anger. I think that's a Southern saying, isn't it? Maybe I made that up. It's like, I can't, you should have seen him. He was snorting mad. And you guys ever seen that? Like, like that's a true thing. But what it says about Jesus is he's angry in his spirit. He's snorting mad at what's going on here. And what we see in Jesus is that this uneasiness of the situation erupts to anger in the very depths of who he was. And you got to ask, what was he mad at? Is he mad at Mary and Martha? Ugh, why are you guys crying? You know I can fix this. You guys don't trust me enough. And what I know about Jesus is that's not him. That's not the way he responds to people. Now see, Jesus wasn't mad at the people. Jesus was mad at the circumstances of the grief that comes with death. And often when we see anger, and Jesus was fully human as well as fully God, so he deals with the same things that we do. And what humans will do is we will cover other emotions with anger. We will cover our hurt and our sadness and pain with anger. That's why it's one of those stages of, of, um, one of, those stages of grief is anger. And I think Jesus in this, he sees all of this hurt that's going around him and all of this suffering, and he's angry at sin that makes death inevitable. He's angry at Satan who has a victory every time somebody dies because of their sin, and he's angry that loved ones hurt. Many of you guys have children, and um, I, I'm still learning. I don't claim to be an expert, but what I have learned is nothing can change my emotions as quickly as what my daughter is going through or is happening to her, and she's only two. And some of you guys have seen way more than I have seen with your children. You've seen them hurt when their prayers weren't answered or you've seen people hurt them in a way that is unfair. And when you see that, when you see somebody that you love hurting and suffering, what is your reaction? It's agony and it comes out as anger. And what we see in Jesus as he sees people who he would call his children, as he sees his children hurting, we see that same reaction out of Jesus that you and I would have if somebody hurt our children. And then immediately following this reaction, Jesus just breaks down and cries. That word weeping there does not mean he did the thing that we sometimes do when we're hurting, where we let one or two tears fall and then we fight it back and say, no, I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to let that happen. It means that Jesus broke down and openly let the tears flow and openly let them fall. Listen to this because we need to hear this today. Our next take home truth is Jesus not only knows your emotions, he feels them with you. Now I want to go back and I want to remember something about Jesus from the beginning of our message here. When Jesus first hears about Lazarus who is about to die and then of course be resurrected at the end of the story, Jesus kind of passes it off and goes, this is not a sickness unto death. 
because he sees the fact that Lazarus dies and then doesn't die and then comes back. It's just kind of a temporary thing. And, and so you see with Jesus that he sees past the initial circumstance of death, knowing that Lazarus will be raised again. But he's still attached to the emotions of grief. And this is what's amazing about God is that Jesus has this ability to be focused on the future and the future good of what's going to happen and still be emotionally in the present. He can see what you're going through and hurt with you and still know that he's going to do something good in it beforehand. And that's why Jesus wept and that's why Jesus cried. He knows the future, but he is still completely engaged in your present. And as Christians, listen, this is the call for how we handle the world. We, we handle the world being emotionally engaged in the present when people are hurting and people are suffering. But we handle it with faith, knowing that God has a plan and that God can do good things through it. Focused on the future, yet present, emotionally, um, emotionally connected in the present. And this whole story reveals some things about God's heart. Obviously, Jesus being God, so when we talk about Jesus, this is God's heart for us. Jesus wants to be with you. Not, not some name that you call on whenever you feel like you need extra something. He wants to be with you and connected to you. He wants, uh, your hardship hurts him emotionally. And number three is Jesus shares your grief. And when Jesus has that heart for people, he is moved to take people's emotions and their suffering and their hurt upon themselves, upon himself. What does the Bible say to us when we are dealing with cares and anxieties and hurts? It says, cast them on him. Give them to him. He will take them. It will become his problem and not yours if you will give it to him. And Jesus sees this problem of sin that makes all of this suffering and all of this hurt possible. And what does he do? He takes it upon himself. He takes the death that we all earned and he gives himself on a cross so that we do not have to deal with the suffering that our sin brings to us. The suffering that results in Eternal death, not just physical death. Next take-home truth, quick hitter here. Jesus' heart moves him to take our sin upon himself. And that's why we worship here today. We don't worship because we're, we're trying to get ourselves into heaven. We, we don't worship because we need a country club of other people who kind of think the way that we do. We worship today because God looked down on this earth and he saw the things that we had done to ourselves and he saw our hurt and our problems and he said, I'm gonna fix that. And we're still involved in a long-term plan where God is going to take this world and he's going to take you and me if we're found in Jesus and he's going to put it back the way he created it in the first place. Listen, heaven is not somewhere that we're going to spend eternity. Did you guys know that? We talk about heaven a lot. No, his plan, his plan is to bring it back to like it was before, a world with humans, with bodies, with no sin, continually, emotionally connected to him forever. And we see the heart of Christ in, in many hardships around the world. This, this story focuses on the hardship of loss, but we all know that losing someone is not the only hardship that we go through in life. We all know that, that hurting because we miss someone who has passed away is not the only thing that it makes our lives hard. In fact, there's a lot of smaller things. There's a lot of things that, that can be considered suffering that are, are small in this world, that are lack of needs, things like poverty and lack of clean water and lack of basic necessities. And God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's the same forever. And he still wants to take these things upon himself. But today, sometimes he chooses to work just a little bit differently than Jesus walking into this scene and commanding it with his mouth. If you read this Bible, this thing right here, and you read it and you apply it to your life, 
What you will find is that Jesus commands his followers, people who give their life to him and say, I will follow you. He commands me and he commands you. What does he say? Take care of the people that I created that are hurting. Take care of their needs. Take care of their basic needs. Do what you must to care for them. And in that, his love flows into us where something changes in us and we love people we have never seen. And it flows through us, flows to others. See, he still cares for people and he still provides their needs, but he chooses to do it sometimes through us. And I've heard this saying, I don't know if this is theologically correct to say it this way, but I've heard people say that, that we as believers, we as Christians are the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. That may not be theologically correct, I don't know, but what that means is that we are the tangible examples of God's love to the world because he puts his heart in us. And then when people see us and the way we behave and people see the way that we treat others and the people see the way that we take other people's needs upon ourselves, that we are troubled and we are moved to action by other people's suffering, it points to him and his heart. And today, today is Operation Christmas Child Dedication Sunday. And what you see on this stage, this is not really good business practices. This is an example of that heart of God within us where he puts this heart in us to care for people who can't care for themselves, to take care of people that can't take care of themselves. How many times have we watched videos where we've seen God work through a story where they say, I suffered through abandonment, but God through a box, he adopted me. I suffered as a refugee, but God through a box, he adopted me. I suffered through a loss of a family member, but God through a box gave me hope that I wasn't alone. I suffered through a lack of educational materials, but God, through a box, supplied my needs. God chooses today to give his love to the world. And one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways he does that is he chooses for his people to reflect his heart and to care for those who are needed. And I hope as we look at these boxes, we look at these boxes with the hope of people coming to salvation, that they will reach and understand that love of him. And, and on this stage, I don't know if anybody's counted these, there are 200 different boxes up here. 200 different boxes. Let me tell you about this. This is our fifth year doing Operation Christmas Child. Five years we've been doing this. Year number one, 44 boxes. And we were excited it was so many boxes. Year number two, 55 boxes. Wow, we grew an awful lot, and we were excited. Year number three, 100 boxes. That was a huge goal, but we hit it. Year number four, 125 boxes. And this year, I made the mistake of, without consulting with the Operation Christmas Child director, I made the mistake of going ahead and putting a number on it. And I proclaimed to you guys, we're going to get 200 boxes this year. And I should have talked to her because she lives with me. And she, uh, her eyes got really big because that goal was too big for this church. But this is your heart. This is God's heart in you being sent out to the world. And this year we hit our goal of 200 boxes with things left over to start us for next year. And before we go any farther, I want to say thank you for all of you who have participated. And I don't care if you've prayed over the boxes, that's participating. If you dropped a dollar or if you donated money, you have helped. If you helped pack, if you showed up and helped work, this is showing the heart of Jesus to the world. On this stage and down below us, I did a very conservative estimate on these boxes and did the math. Over $4,000 sits up here. And actually, I'd be closer to believe probably closer to five to $6,000. And that's not money that came out of the church bank account. There was not a single check written that was out of regular offering. This came from you when you came to church and you dropped in a $5 bill in a jar. 
This came for you when you went to Walmart and you found that toy you thought some kid in Africa or South America need and you bought it with your own money. You guys did this. This is, this is our victory for Christ. This is his victory through us. And as we get ready to pray over these boxes, I want to remind you that I hope you never see 200 boxes. It's a shoe box. It's got stuff in it. It's not that special. It's, it's an object. But these boxes represent what is going to turn into 200 smiles. And 200 kids who are going to have the gospel shared with them. These shoeboxes represent 200 families that are going to see their children receive something from the love of God. And here is my prayer. I hope it turns into 200 people who become followers of the one true God. Absolutely. But I thought of something bigger. I thought of something bigger this week. We like to put God in a box and say, oh, we got 200 boxes. God, you saved 200 people. Oh, I don't think so. What if one of these boxes goes to a kid who gives their life to Christ and grows up to become a pastor or a missionary or a Bible study leader or a Sunday school teacher and they pour into 10 other kids who come to know Christ and each of those kids pour into 10 other kids and over a lifetime, one of these boxes may have the effect on thousands of people's eternities. And so when we dedicate these boxes and we pray for them, that's what we're praying for. We're praying, God, use this box in a mighty way. Jessica told me her saying for this year was expect the unexpected. And that's what I hope that we do with these boxes is we expect more than what we could have ever imagined. God, do something amazing with these. And today we're gonna put these in a couple cars and we're gonna take them and we're gonna drop them out of church and we'll never see them again. And we may know what country they went to, but for the most part, we'll never know what happened or what the effect of them was. But today we turn them over to God and that's what our dedication Sunday is. Is we turn them over to God and say, God, take these and work in them because we've done what we can. And with that, our Operation Christmas Child Director, the very beautiful and talented Miss Jessica, I can say that, is gonna come up here. She has some things to say to you. I'm not sure if I can follow all that. That was pretty what I wanted to say right there. Um, I just want to kind of say it again. It's just thank you for what you have gave in this church. And just like your time, your money, um, and your gifts have made this all very possible. And as he said, we have 200 boxes ready to be shipped off to who knows where. We'll find out in a couple of weeks. And um, it's just a very exciting time full of joy. Um, the only thing I wanted to say is just to kind of recap is what we did this year is we we uh, chose a ministry with Samaritan's Purse, which is Operation Christmas Child. We collected items each month throughout the year, and then we packed the boxes all together a couple weeks ago, and then today we're dedicating them to um to Christ and so I thought it'd be really a good time to put the cross up today is I told Brian I said I want to do it where we're laying the boxes at his feet and we're saying your will not mine and you take them where you need to take them and where they need to go and you do amazing things with them so that is my goal for today and all I'm going to ask you to do is to if you don't mind if you feel comfortable doing it whether you packed them whether you didn't or you prayed over them we're going to do that today if you don't mind to grab a box and come up closer to the front and we're just going to lay them down here and we're just going to let god 
pray and we're going to pray over him like God use him in a mighty way and I'm going to open it up for prayer if you feel like you want to pray you can you don't have to and then Brian's going to close it up for us so I'm going to get you out of your comfort zone just a little bit if you don't mind to stand up and come up here y'all can spread off if you need to you can grab the boxes in the aisles or the boxes on the